All right. How you guys doing? Spring break was good, I hope. I'm going to scoop myself up just a little bit. Sweet. Good to be back with you guys. Glad for a chance to kick stuff off here again and to open up God's Word with you. We are closing out, uh, not our series, Following Peter, but we're actually closing out the book of John tonight. Uh, but before we jump there, uh, a couple years ago, I had this moment where I came before the table on a Thursday night. Some of you were there. Some of you were, probably most of you were not at that point, but I came before the table on a Thursday night and decided to confess some things to you, one particular flaw of mine from my past and from my present. And as I came to confess those things, I fully expected that this would be a safe place to open up about my failures. And then as I confessed that, that I would receive grace and understanding from everyone, but I did not receive grace and understanding. I received uh, booze from the people standing out there. I received, I had all kinds of crap, just like not literally thrown at me, but like I had all kinds of stuff coming my way because of this simple confession that I made, this own flaw in my own life, and that is this. I have never once seen Avengers Endgame. Uh, yes, I know. I know. And, and that same kind of reaction, only with a lot more like vitriol in it, like you'd have thought that I would have stu like stood up and said, I love kicking puppies, right? Because people lost their minds on me for this basic confession. And I tried to explain. I have not seen, I, I want to see it. I'm just, I, I can't see Avengers Endgame yet because I haven't seen Infinity War yet. And I got to see Infinity War. And the reason I haven't seen Infinity War is because I still got to see Age of Ultron. And so I was still working through some things, right? But I do want you to know I have made stuff right in the last couple years, partially. I have seen Age of Ultron. I still have not seen Infinity War or Endgame yet. But those things are I'm getting there, okay? My, my son really wants to watch the, the Avengers movie, so I've started watching through them with him. So that's going to be my motivation. Pretty soon I will be... Uh, a true Christian, pretty soon. I will have seen everything that I'm supposed to see. Um, I'll eat Chick-fil-A while I'm watching it, and it'll be like completely. Um, so here's the thing. I have not seen a lot of Marvel movies. I've seen like a couple Iron Mans, and I think Civil War, and the Guardians, and those two Avenger movies. So just a few, right? I haven't seen a lot. But I have seen enough to know this one truth about any Marvel movie, and that is that at the end of the movie, the last scene will go away and then the credits will start rolling, but you never stand up and walk out of the theater at that point, right? I know this. I know that after, after the movie is over, that you stay there, the credits, because what's going to happen after this? And this is actually, this has caused some contention as I've asked this question today. What takes place after the credits roll? Okay, question by the way. Post-credit scene or end-credit scene? Two different, they're two different things. Who says post-credit scene? Who says end-credit scene? Has anyone ever heard the term stinger? I'm like, that must be a term that old people use. The stinger, okay? The, the post-credit scene, the end-credit scene, this final scene that takes place at the end of Marvel movies that's kind of this like, Maybe wrap up a little bit of stuff, maybe more like foreshadowing to stuff that's coming. Kind of this one last thing you need to know um, happens at the end of everything. Everybody knows that. But did you know that Marvel did not invent 
the end credit scene or the post credit scene. It wasn't Marvel who came up with that. I want to propose to you tonight, uh, the inventor of the post credit scene was the Apostle John. Yes, 2,000 years before Marvel, and we're actually going to read that tonight. Uh, so two weeks ago, we talked about, uh, Alexia talked to us about the, revel, uh, the resurrection of Jesus and the appearances of Jesus to Mary Magdalene and his followers in John chapter 20. And in the final scene of John 20, Jesus comes to his followers there, and, and they're all in this room, and Thomas gets to see them, uh, gets to see him for the first time, and, and sees the, the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side, and he falls on his knees, and he says, my Lord and my God. And then when the, the, the chapter closes, it ends with these two verses, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the credits start rolling, right? That's, that's the perfect ending to the book. John gives you his purpose statement. This is why I wrote this, and there's a lot of other stuff I could have written, but I wrote this stuff so that you would be able to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might be able to believe in him and have life in his name, the end. But then, like, as the credits are starting to wrap up, John, like, pulls back the curtain, and there's this one final scene that he wants you to see. There's, there's one other thing that he feels like you really probably need to know that this happened before you go any further, before you kind of walk away from this book. You need to see these things. There's this, there's this other encounter that takes place between the disciples and Jesus, specifically between Peter and Jesus. You'll remember uh, three weeks ago when Rachel was teaching that we talked about the Last Supper. And, and at that time, Peter was talking a really big game in front of Jesus and the disciples. Jesus says that you're all going to fall away on account of me tonight. Tonight I will be arrested. I will be put on trial. I will be crucified, and all of you are going to walk away. Peter stands up and says, no, 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 not me, Lord. Listen, I don't know, I don't know about the rest of these losers here, but, but whatever they do, even if all of them fall away, I will not abandon you. I will go with you to the grave. And, and he stays with that for a while. When the, when the soldiers come and arrest Jesus, Peter tries to fight, and he pulls out a sword, and Jesus stops him, but, but soon enough he scatters with the rest of them. And then later that night, just as Jesus predicted earlier, uh, when people accuse Peter of being an associate of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, three different times he denies it. Because he doesn't want to get pulled into what Jesus is getting pulled into. He's not willing to go with him, even to death. And then after the third time, the rooster crows, just like Jesus predicted. And as Peter looks up across the courtyard, he catches eyes in the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. And he is wrecked in that moment, devastated over, over the fact that he just failed his Lord, just failed the one person that he felt like he had more loyalty, more devotion to than anyone else. How do you live with the devastation like that? You ever thought about the fact that there were no alarm clocks back then, which means every morning for the rest of his life, Peter wakes up to the sound of his betrayal wakes up to the sound of a rooster crowing and possibly has to relive that moment all over again. How do you live with something like that? What John shows us at the end of his book, though, is that Peter doesn't have to live with that forever. 
that he gets a second chance. It's in 21, starting in verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3, says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So John 20 closes in Jerusalem. There, that's where all of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion all take place in Jerusalem, which is like the capital city of their country there. And it's in the region of Judea down in the south. But now in 21, we see that the disciples have gone back up north to Galilee. So if you look over here on the map, Jerusalem is there with the star at the very bottom. That's where most of the stuff at the end of John's gospel take, took place. But most of Jesus's ministry actually took place up there at the top where it says Galilee and specifically around that little like heart-shaped lake right there which is the Sea of Galilee and and this is actually what what John just referenced here he calls it the Sea of Tiberias it had three different names but one of them was Sea of Tiberias one of them was uh, the Sea of Galilee and and right up there at the top Capernaum Bethsaida that's where the disciples are from this is where Jesus met them for the first time and this is where they are, up there fishing on the lake, separated from all the commotion that is in Jerusalem. And they go out onto the lake, and they're fishing throughout the night, but they catch nothing. And then we read in verse 4, When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Again, they're sitting here out in the boat, and Jesus calls out to them. And when they look out, we're going to find that they're about 100 yards away from Jesus. And so they don't recognize him. And we don't know if it's because of the distance or if there's something else that Jesus is kind of keeping them from recognizing him in this moment. But they don't know that it's him as he calls out to them. He tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat, which, which doesn't really make any sense. How does moving the net 15 feet really help you out? And, and not to mention the fact that actually when you fished out on the sea like this, there were actually two different nets that they used. They used encircling nets, so that would be a net that was attached to two boats, and they would find a school of fish, and these two boats would wrap themselves around the school of fish to contain themselves, or to contain the fish, and then they would take their casting net. And once the school was contained within that encircling net, then they could throw the casting net in and then begin to scoop up fish. Well, if they've been fishing over here and Jesus says, toss on the other side, that's outside of the encircling net. There's, there's no fish over there to catch anyway. This is just silly. But they go ahead and do it. I mean, what, what can it hurt? They've caught nothing all night anyway. And then when they do, they begin to haul it in. And there's so much fish that they cannot bring the net in. Does this sound familiar to you? It should, because this is the way that Peter first encountered Jesus. Or not the way he first encountered him, but the first time that he really saw Jesus for who he was. We talked about this the very first night at the table. Luke 5, 
Peter, James, and John, and Andrew are out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is out there preaching, and they know of Jesus. They've, they've seen him, they've heard from him, but they don't fully know who he is in this moment. And the crowds are pressing in on him so much that he has nowhere to stand. He's backed up against the sea. And so as Peter and James and John are emptying their boat and cleaning their nets, they've caught nothing all night. And Jesus says, hey, could I step inside your boat for a second and teach from there? And they're like, sure, whatever. And then after he's done, Jesus says, tell you what, cast back out there and throw the nets out again. See what happens. And Peter's like, we've tried all night, this is crazy, but, but whatever you say, and he throws it out, and, and there's so much in that they can't pull it in, it takes two boats, and the nets are starting to rip, and it's in that moment Peter's eyes are open, and he realizes this is more than just a man, and he falls on his knees, and Jesus commissions Peter in that moment, and says, from now on, you're with me. From now on, you'll not be fishing for these anymore, I'll put you to work fishing for men. And here we are, three years later, and it's almost like Jesus is taking Peter all the way back to the beginning. As he relives this first miracle that brought him within Jesus' fold from the very beginning. And we see in verses 7 through 9 these words. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John. John said to Peter, it is the Lord. So John gets deja vu, and he's like, wait a second. I remember the last time this happened. I remember what caused this, and he realizes that's Jesus over there. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. And since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. So John, when he realizes this, he calls it out. Peter, who's always a little bit impulsive and always just kind of jumps into things, literally jumps out of the boat into the water, and he just starts swimming to get back to shore, to get over to Jesus. And when he gets to shore, he finds Jesus cooking fish and bread over a fire. But, but not just any fire. Did you catch what kind of fire it describes us to be? Charcoal fire is the word that it uses. This is a Greek word. I, th I think it is anthrakia, okay? This Greek word, it is only used twice in all the Bible. One is right here. The other time this word is used is John 18, 18, which is the exact kind of fire that Peter was standing around when he denied Jesus three times. So once again, it seems like Jesus is bringing Peter back to the moment of his deepest despair, to the moment of his deepest failure, and says, come sit around a fire again. Only this time it's going to go differently, Peter. And so Peter pulls up there and begins to sit and talk with Jesus. Verse 10 says this, Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. 
And this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Many have tried to find significance in this number, 153. Why does John say 153? And there are people who've made, come to all these theories. Well, 153 is the triangulation of the number 17. And maybe 17 is like 10 commandments and seven days of the week. And it's the law and, and God's perfection. All, this, all these silly things. I think the reason, John, if you want to know, like I think probably the deep reason that John says that there were 153 fish is probably because there were 153 fish. I think John is just, just pointing out there's a lot. <laughs> they caught a lot of fish. It was pretty incredible. So much so that somebody's like, dude, how many did we catch? And somebody went over and like counted. And, and they're like, that was 153. I think that's why John says that they caught that many. And so they, they, they check all these fish. And then verse 12 says this interesting statement that none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. There's this really interesting thing happening where, where it's like they know this is Jesus. And yet there's this part of them that wants to ask, is that really you? But they can't bring themselves to do it. They're like scared to do it. And I think what's happening is it's like they're looking at him and they know, they, they see the nails, the nail marks in the hands on the feet. That's got to be Jesus. But it still feels too crazy, still feels too good even to be true. We weren't hallucinating when we saw him. It wasn't just a figment of our imagination. He's here. This is real. He's eating with us. And they can't believe it as they get to be there with him. And now the conversation gets slightly awkward. Verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. This is a famous and strange and, and almost theatrical dialogue. A lot of people have, have really have been fascinated by this conversation between Jesus and Peter here. And some will make a big deal. You'll hear some people say that Jesus uses a different word for love than Peter does. That Jesus says, do you agape love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I phileo love you. These are these two different words. And some people will make a big difference, a big deal out of that, that there's some sort of theological significance. Again, I think John is just using synonyms, like two similar words for love. And there's no major significance between the fact that they're two different ones. But as he asks him this question, he asks him three different times. And again, what's the last thing that, G that Peter did three times? Denied Jesus around a charcoal fire. And here in this moment, Jesus says, we're doing this over again. And now around this fire, Peter gets to confirm and affirm for Jesus three times. I love you. I love you, Lord. No, I promise you, I love you, Lord. But Jesus is not guilt-tripping him. He's not trying to make him feel bad. He's not trying to just bring up the past just to make him feel shame for it. No, I believe that he's restoring him. In fact, most scholars, that's what they title this, probably the heading in your Bible calls this Peter's restoration or Jesus' restoration of Peter. That's what Jesus is doing here. 
He's, he's giving him, he's asking this question, do you love me, Peter? Are you still in? Are you still with me? And listen, Peter's right. Peter says, Lord, you know. You know everything. You know that I love you, which is absolutely true. Jesus does know. Jesus isn't asking for himself. I think he's asking for Peter. I think he's asking for the other disciples sitting around that fire in that moment to get to hear Peter say these words and for Peter to be able to say it himself. But notice, Peter's love is not going to be demonstrated by how much he feels it in his heart, as good as that may be. When he says, I love you, what Jesus says next to him then is, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. What he means by that is like, care for the church. Take care of the people who belong to me, Peter. Draw them in and, and, and guide them and follow me. So basically, if you love me, do what I'm asking you to do. Obey me. Follow me. His love will be demonstrated by action and by faithfulness and obedience to him. And Jesus is about to explain what this love is going to cost him. Verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So he tells Peter, listen, going with me, to follow me, to, be, to, to love me is going to cost you one day your life. And what Jesus is describing, he says, when you were younger, you get to put your belt on, you get to walk wherever you want, you've got independence. But as you get old, I'm telling you, there's going to be a day when you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go. And you're going to stretch out your hands. And the idea that almost everybody, like when, when scholars read this, and this is the way Christians actually described crucifixion in the early centuries, was the stretching out of your hands. Because what they did to the victims, oftentimes before crucifying them, is they would take the crossbeam of the cross. So the stake would already be in the ground, and they would take the crossbeam of it, the patibulum is what it was called, and they would tie your hands around that crossbeam, and then they would make you walk through the marketplace. They would make you walk through the streets with that on your back so everyone would know this man is a condemned man. This man is going to his death. And then when you got to the cross, they would raise you up on the beam and then nail you in. And tradition tells us this is exactly what happened to Peter, that he was crucified probably under the reign of Nero in 68 AD. So about 30, 35 years after this moment, Peter is crucified. And then he says the same thing that he said to Peter three years ago out on this same lake after Peter had hauled in all those fish, he says, follow me. So they get up and they start walking. And we read these words. So Peter turned around and he saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? Again, that's John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you? Follow me. So this rumor spreads to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But it, he merely said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And so Peter's just heard about the great cost that it's going to be for him to follow Jesus. That one day he will suffer and die just like Jesus. And as he hears these words from Jesus, he looks back at John who's nearby and he goes, wait, 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 wait a second, just me? Why me? What about him? What's going to happen to him in the coming years? And, and, and Jesus' response is fairly short and to the point. Listen, 
don't concern yourself with what I want to do with him. If I want him to live forever, if I want him to live till I come back, that's no concern of yours. You've got one task. Follow me, Peter. You've got one thing to do. Follow me. Keep your eyes on me and follow me. Of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles that end up going out, John is the only one who's not actually martyred. John will live a life. He'll be exiled to the island of Patmos, and he'll spend his life there. But because he lives for a while, there was this rumor that went, oh, Jesus said he was never going to die. And, of course, this, this is written to kind of clarify, no, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus just said that if he wanted him to live forever, he could. But that's not really the concern. And so that kind of rumor spread. But these are kind of John's closing words as he finishes out the book. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written This is a beautiful closing scene, this final encounter between Jesus and Peter that we get to see, to get to learn something as we read it. We get to learn something, actually, though, about our own lives. And we get to watch as Peter encounters Jesus in this moment. We get to watch and we get to actually see what it looks like for us to encounter Jesus and what that means for us to do those things. And that's what we're going to talk about right after the break in just a few minutes. But you can take a couple minutes, grab a drink, use the restroom, and we'll be back. We do hope that you guys will will truly consider that, uh, to do what we want to do. Uh, as a ministry, we're just realizing is going to require you to be a part of it. We're not going to be able to do uh, what we want just leaning on our staff. Um, and, and, and so we, we, we need you to be a part of this mission that our ministry is. And that actually is kind of a, a fairly good uh, transition, actually. I didn't realize so I was sitting back there to what I wanted to kind of start by talking with you about. I want to show you something that we bring up from time to time. A number of you have probably seen this. We, we try to draw this out so that everyone gets a chance to see it, and we want to remind you of it from time to time. We call this uh, the chain of discipleship, or sometimes you might just hear us refer to it as the circles. And, and we use this to describe the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus and what that looks like. Um, our goal at the table is that we would see as many students as possible move as far down this chain as possible. That's, that's our goal. We, we want to help make disciples of Jesus. And, and this is actually kind of uh, what I want to propose to you and what we believe to be true, is that every person that you encounter and every person in this room fits somewhere in one of those six circles. There's no one that falls outside as everyone falls somewhere along this spectrum, whether that be on the far side and there'd be no one in this room in this specific circle because we just talked about Jesus. So hopefully you're not unaware um, unless you just slept through the first half. Uh, But uh, so who are unaware of Jesus and don't know anything about him. Um, And then there are those who know about him and, and they're not interested. This is a lot of the students at OSU, uh, people who, who know of him and they've heard about him. Maybe they even went to church, but they're not interested. And then there are some who are interested in Jesus and they're fascinated by him and, and they're maybe even kind of curious, but they've never actually made any sort of commitment to him, any, any decision to put their faith or trust in him. And then uh, there are those who become disciples of Jesus, who, who have placed their faith in him and want to give their lives to him. And, and the goal is that uh, the disciples that come into our ministry, that we help you become disciple makers, that is, people who are helping others 
grow to know Jesus, whether that is re- reaching back and inviting others into Jesus, a life with Jesus, or whether that is helping other people grow. And that's part of what the table serve teams are designed to do is, is that you help in this process of disciple making. And our ultimate goal for everyone is what we call lifelong, life-wide discipleship, to be the kind of person that, that not just follows Jesus their whole life, but lets Jesus and his lordship affect every area of their life. And his goodness and his grace and his love affect every area of their life and their whole identity. That's what we want for everyone. Um, And as I said, everyone in this room falls somewhere in those six circles. And, And there are six circles, but the reality is there's only just two categories. Six circles, but only two categories. There's those who are in Christ and those who are not. There are those who are followers of Jesus and there are those who are not. There are disciples who have placed their faith in Jesus and there are those who have not. And the hinge point, of course, is that point right in the middle of the cross. The difference is whether or not a person has encountered and knows the living Christ, knows Jesus. But what I want to say to you tonight is that encountering Jesus is not enough. There are a lot of people who will encounter Jesus during the course of their life, who will come into a thing like this, and they'll hear about Jesus, and they'll be told the gospel and all those things and encounter, but but to encounter is not enough. To be a disciple of Jesus means that a person must do at least three things. There are three different responses, at least, necessary to Jesus when we encounter him. And we see these exemplified. We see kind of a little picture of those three things in Peter's encounter with Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, these three things that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But before I do that, I just want to take just couple minutes to define what we mean by this word disciple. That's a big word. Uh, the word is uh, mathetes or mathates, I think is actually how it's pronounced, this Greek word. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so this is the word mathetes that comes up and, and it comes up in the Bible 269 times just in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, we see this word pop up. And, and literally the word means like at its most literal basic meaning, it means learner or it means student. But when you hear that, don't think like college student. Don't think like sitting at a desk and taking notes and trying to kind of gain more and more information and more and more knowledge. No, in Jesus's day, in this culture back then, uh, when a disciple was following a teacher or a rabbi, that disciple did not just want their teacher's knowledge. They wanted their teacher's life. They wanted to learn from their teacher so they could live like their teacher. That was the goal, was to be so close to the rabbi, so close to my teacher, and to so emulate him that I begin to look like him. That's what I want in my life, and that's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, that I begin to emulate him. And, of course, the difference between Jesus and every other rabbi is every other rabbi, it was on you to figure it out. It was on you to try and learn enough. It was on you, and they might help you out and give you advice on all of those things, but they couldn't do anything to actually change you. But Jesus actually transforms a person and begins to make this thing possible. But this is the idea of what it is to be a disciple, is to learn from Jesus so I can live like Jesus, so I can follow him closely. And in the Bible, you'll see this word pop up a lot of the time referring to the disciples, to the 12 disciples. So sometimes you'll see the disciples, sometimes you'll see this word, the 12 and, and often it, it refers to them, but it doesn't just refer to them. Actually, this word is used to describe anyone who believes in Jesus. Anyone 
who has placed their faith in Jesus. Did you know that the word Christian did not exist for the first two or three decades after Jesus ascended into heaven? They didn't have the word Christian. That was a word that got made up uh, several towns over in Antioch, up north in, in the area of like Syrian Antioch. That word got made up. But, but for the first like couple decades, the only word they really had, they would sometimes use believer, but the only, the primary word they had to describe someone who believed in Jesus was disciple. That's, that's what you were if you placed your faith in Jesus. And this is what it is to be a disciple. To be a disciple means these three things. First, it means receiving restoration from Jesus, just like Peter did on the shores of Galilee, standing around a charcoal fire and being brought back in by Jesus through this conversation. Peter, of course, is not the only person to ever sin against Jesus. He's not the only one to ever do things that he deeply regrets. The Bible says that every sin you've ever committed is against God and against his son. And every sin you've ever committed takes you outside the realm of relationship with him, separates you from him, and so that all you've got left to face is hopelessness and shame and death and wrath because of what you've done. The really good news, though, for Peter was that Just hours after the moment of his deepest shame, hours after Peter went to his lowest point, Jesus went lower. And Jesus went to the very bottom, to the most shameful place imaginable, to crucifixion, to death on a cross. And in that moment, took all three of Peter's denials with him to that cross. And not just those denials, but every other thing that Peter had ever done and every other thing that you had done paid for on that cross. And all you have to do is be able to receive that kind of restoration. That's what Jesus came to do. And if this were any other religion, when Jesus shows up on the shore of Galilee and Peter swims over to shore to meet him, Jesus would be standing there around the fire and would say, not so fast, Peter. No, 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 no. you've got some making up to do. You've got some debts to pay. You tipped the scales far too, far too strongly into the guilty category. And you're going to have to do some good deeds to get that worked out. You're going to have to do some things to pay me back. That's not what Jesus does, though. There's nothing for Peter to pay back because Jesus already paid it on the cross. The same is true for us. When we come to Jesus... There's nothing to pay back. Every other religion would require you to do that. And not just actually religion, even our own like religionless spirituality, this whole kind of like I'm going to kind of find God thing and do it on my own terms. Even that depends on me like finding my way. That depends on me like making my way, my own path to God. Jesus says there's no path for you to have to make. I already made it for you. There's no door for you to have to find. I already opened it up for you. And so the the idea of being a disciple of Jesus is not that you come to be a good enough person. It's that Jesus has already done that. And the first thing that we do as a disciple is we come to him and we allow him to restore us, to make us right with God again. And that's nothing that we do, no matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've done it, no matter how deep the shame in our past, Jesus stands ready to forgive. Jesus stands ready to forgive. 
restore. And that's nothing. He doesn't say you fix yourself or restore yourself. It is something he freely gives to you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. You've heard these verses here before. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You couldn't save yourselves. There's nothing you could do to fix yourselves. Good news. It's a free gift from God. Not from works so that no one can boast. We simply trust in Jesus. That's when you encounter Jesus and you hear what he has done for you, your job is simply to trust in him, put your faith in him, and confess your allegiance to him through baptism, to show yourself that I am ready to give my life to him. That's, that's what you do when you encounter him. There's nothing we do to earn God's favor, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing we do. Because the very next couple, the very next verse in Ephesians 2, verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So I don't do anything to earn God's favor, but he has made me into a new kind of person who ought to be doing things now. And that leads us to the second response, to be a disciple. Being a disciple means lovingly obeying Jesus. That's kind of a clunky phrase, lovingly obeying. But I think both of those words are important. I feel like both of those need to be there. Three times as Peter gathers around the fire with Jesus, he's asked, do you love me? And this is the question that every one of you will need to answer. Everyone who wants to be a disciple will need to listen to Jesus ask these words and be able to answer them. Do you love me? The truth is that many people probably probably some people in this room right now really admire Jesus really think that Jesus is is great and amazing and awesome believe all the right things about Jesus but they don't love him and it shows it shows because they're not willing to obey him that's how you know They'll give him lip service. They'll talk about how great he is. They'll sing worship songs about him. They'll come to things like this and, and, and talk up Jesus and be so excited for how he makes them feel better in their life and all of those things. But they won't obey his commands. They won't do the things that he's asked them to do in this book. They will not conform their life to what he's called them to. Every time Peter says, yes, I love you, Jesus, Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. You love me? Obey me which fits right in line with what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will follow me. There is no biblical category for someone who is a believer but not a disciple. That doesn't exist in the Bible. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a committed disciple of Jesus. You don't get to just believe but not actually obey. Those two things go hand in hand in the scriptures. We are called to love him. He wants our hearts. But if, if he's got our hearts, then he's going to have our obedience. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, is to lovingly obey him. Now, I'm not describing perfection here. I'm not describing a life where you never fail, but I am describing like a, a general trajectory of your life as being one that is submitted towards Christ, that wants to do what he calls you to do. So, 
every one of us has to, at some point, be able to listen to Jesus as he speaks to you through this book and asks you this question, looking you in the eye, do you love me? Or do you just admire me from a distance? Do you just think I'm really great, but you're not really ready to follow, not really ready to obey? And that leads to the third thing. Being a disciple means simply following Jesus. After restoring Peter, Jesus gives him a look at his future. And it's really interesting. I don't know if you actually thought about this, but it's very interesting. He says, one of these days you're going to be let out and you're going to have your arms stretched out because of following me. You're going to be crucified, Peter. What's fascinating is that was the very future that Peter was trying to avoid when he denied him. That's why he denied him, because he didn't want to end up in that courtroom with Jesus. He didn't want to end up on trial. He didn't want to end up in the same boat that he was. And here is Jesus saying, that's what's coming. This is actually the very thing that sparked the confrontation with Peter and Jesus all the way back in Mark 8, when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to be rejected by the chief priests and the leaders, and he's going to be crucified, and three days, three days rise again, and, and then Peter stands up and goes, whoa, 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 Jesus. That's not how this works. No, no, no. That's not what happens to our team. We're the winners. We're the good guys. You're the champions, so you don't die. That's, that's not how this works. And then Peter, Jesus rebukes him, says, get behind me, Satan. And then he pulls Peter to the side and calls everyone up, and he says, listen, let's get this straight. And he says these words to them in Mark 8, verse 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And here he is telling Peter on the shores of Galilee, you will take up your literal cross to follow me. Peter starts to look around and everybody else, just me? John? What, what about John? Is he going to have to go through the same kind of things I'm going to go to? But Jesus responds, that's not your concern. I've got my own plans for John. Peter, you have one job. Watch the rabbi and follow. Eyes on the rabbi, eyes on the teacher, eyes on the Lord, follow. That's your concern. I don't know. For each and every one of you, what this life of following Jesus might look like for you. But I do know that for some of you, it's going to be very hard. Some of you will go through some difficult things in life, and, and some of that might be a direct result of your decision to follow Jesus. Some losses of relationships or financial or whatever it may be, some suffering you may go through. Some of that may just be kind of the, the everyday life occurrences that you're going to go through. Some of you will will go through the pain of losing a child in their young age. Some of you may have a spouse that leaves you. Some of you may, may, may get cancer as you get old and go through some very painful things. Some of you have already been through some really, really painful things. And in the middle of those painful things, it can get easy to take our eyes off, off of Jesus and then begin to look at ourselves and everyone else around us and start comparing lives and asking why I'm going through the kinds of things that other people don't have to go through. Like why I have to deal with these things. Why does he get the really cool family 
that like encourages him and, and loves the Lord and, and, and is so excited for him that he's following the Lord. And my family, it seems like the closer I get to Jesus, the more I try to follow him, the more tension it puts on my relationship with my family back home. Why did I draw that straw? Why is it that she gets to find someone in college and she gets engaged and she's got a husband coming and I've got like no prospects and I don't know what's happening for me? Why does things work out for her? Why is he so gifted? Why is she so gifted? Why does she have all the things that make it so easy to be able to like um, stand up and serve in church, whether that's leading worship or teaching or those kinds of things? And I don't, I don't feel like I got anything. It can be so easy to begin to look at the, the walks of other people as they're following Jesus and begin to compare, or maybe not to compare with other people, to begin, but to begin to think about our own future and to live our life in worry about what may be coming. Like, how do I know that this whole following Jesus thing is going to work out for me? How do I know that God's going to take care of me? How do I know that life's not going to fall apart? And in those moments, Jesus comes to us and he says, do you trust me? Do you know me? Do you know that I'm good? Do you know that I want good for you? Do you know that I have the ability to take care of you? Then don't worry about them. Don't worry about what she gets. Don't worry about what he gets. Don't worry about the path that they take. Don't worry about your future. You've got one job. Keep your eyes on me and follow. Keep your eyes on your master. Keep your eyes on your teacher and follow me. These are what it means to be a disciple, that we allow Jesus in his grace to restore us from all our deepest failures and sins. We lovingly obey him, and we simply follow him. But here's the reality. You're not going to do that. Not all the time, at least. That all of us will have moments of failure. All of us will have moments standing around that charcoal fire, doing things that we so deeply regret, like Peter denying Jesus. So what do we do then? When that happens, what we do is, just like Peter, we go meet Jesus again. We go sit around a fire with him and encounter him one more time. When I was a kid um, in school, my favorite, absolute favorite recess game was Foursquare. Uh, loved that game. Like, I just like thought about, I probably spent too much time during class not thinking about what I was teaching because I was thinking about Foursquare. And the next time in recess, I could play recess, I, I could play Foursquare like all day, every day when I was in grade school. Would play that all the time, loved it. But there was this one problem with Foursquare, and this is true of a lot of playground games, and that is that there's no referee in Foursquare. And there's a lot of opportunities in Foursquare for things to get messy. Right? Because there's these different lines here. And, and how many times every recess, I don't know if you play four square, does that ball land right on the line between your square and somebody else's? Right? And you swear it was their square and they swear it was yours. And there's no one there to like be there and kind of clean it up. And so now it's just going to be a matter of who gets loudest and who gets angriest. And everything can kind of dissolve into chaos except for this one word. This one word that like every grade school kid knows, and, and maybe you remember throwing this around, whether it was in Foursquare or something else, do-over, right? You know that one, do-over? There were some kids who said redo, which was lame, I think. It's not redo, it's do-over, okay? Do-over is the word, right? And so, and so this is the word. Whenever, whenever the ball lands in some place that you don't know, or whenever make, like another ball flies in from off the playground and comes and hits something and it causes chaos and you don't know what to do and things are about to just spiral out of control, this word saves everything. Do over. 
What we read in John chapter 21 is Peter getting one of those. It's a do-over. Everything gets reset. And the truth is, these decisions to allow Jesus to restore you, to lovingly obey him, to simply follow him, those aren't one-time decisions. Those are actually decisions that as Christians we make every day. That every day we come back to Jesus with our failures and we allow him in his grace to restore us. We accept his forgiveness. Now listen, I'm not saying that you have to go seek him every day to get forgiven. No, no, no. When you gave your life to Christ, your sins were paid for, past, present, and future. But so often it can get easy to get buried in the shame of our sin and failures. And so when that happens, we take him to Jesus. And we meet him around that charcoal fire and we allow him to restore us. I love you. I forgive you. I'm with you all the way through, Jesus says. And then we commit again, do you love me? We say yes, and we get back up and we start to follow again. That's what it is to be a disciple. That's what it is to to be with Jesus all the way through, is to day after day come back to this. Martin Luther once said, all the Christian life is one of repentance. Every day I kind of come back and I repent and I go, I'm with you again, Lord. I fail, but I'm with you again. This is what it is to be a follower. This is what we want for you. That these three things would mark your life to be restored by him, to obey him in love, and to keep your eyes on him as you follow him. Let me pray that that would be true of you. Dear God, I thank you for your very big grace. I thank you for the way that that was provided to us in Jesus. And I pray that your grace would be something that is real in these students' lives and that in their highest of highs and in their lowest of lows, they would know that they could come to Jesus who has made a way for them to be restored, that that would ring true over them over and over again, that that would be real to them. And I pray that that truth would stir in them a deep desire to love and obey Jesus and to follow him with their whole lives, all of their lives. Faithfully keeping their eyes on him, Lord, would your Holy Spirit do that thing in us tonight? Help us to be disciples who do these three things over and over and over again for our good and our joy and for your glory. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.